You can turn your Bibles now to First uh, John chapter four. First John chapter four. A very direct text, very direct, as as much has been with the Apostle John. It is uh, intriguing how at this time when we are studying false teachers, we came to this video series in the evening, Clouds Without Water, which discusses a lot of false teachers who are prevalent in our society. They are everywhere. They were then in the early church. They are today. And then to have uh, Nathan to uh, lead in studying systematic theology and knowing what we know from the Word of God. Uh, I know Titus says, or Paul wrote to Titus saying that uh, the elders especially, but anyone in the church, especially the elders, the pastors, need to be able to exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict it. Essential, essential for the health of the church and to protect against false teaching. So our primary text is the first six verses of 1 John chapter 4. And this title is titled, Five Ways to Spot a Wolf. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, of which you have heard that it is coming. And now it is already in the world. You are from God, little children, and have overcome them. Because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. They are from the world. Therefore they speak as from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. He who knows God listens to us. He who is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Well, Little Red Riding Hood called out to her grandmother. Good morning, but received no answer. So she went into the bed and drew back the curtains. There lay her grandmother with her cap pulled far over her face, and looking very strange. Oh, grandmother, she said, what big ears you have. All the better to hear you with, my child, was the reply. But grandmother, what big eyes you have. She said, all the better to see you with, my dear. But grandmother, what large hands you have. All the better to hug you with. Oh, but grandmother, what a terrible big mouth you have. All the better to eat you with. And scarcely had the wolf said this, then with one bound he was out of bed and swallowed up Red Riding Hood. Well, it might have actually gone a bit better for Red Riding Hood if at the first sign of a wolf she would have headed for the sanctuary doors. This is why the Apostle John is speaking to us today through this text so we can discern the signs of spiritual wolves. John and Jesus call them false prophets. But instead of dressing up as grandma, these wolves dress up as sheep. 
Jesus said in our earlier scripture reading, Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. And twice our Lord says in that same passage, You will know them by their fruits. In Acts chapter 20, the Apostle Paul warns Ephesus of wolves as well. He says, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. So Paul was warning these elders in Ephesus that false prophets who devour the sheep often arise from within. So he says, be on watch, be alert. I've cited this passage in previous weeks, you probably recognize it. But to this point, I had refrained from tacking on verse 31. Today it's appropriate to our lesson. Paul continues saying, Therefore be on alert for wolves, remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. Being this is the second time that John mentions Antichrist, it shows how prevalent they are. Um, He mentioned it back in chapter 2. And there he referred, remember, to Antichrist who had left the church. You might recall, he said that they went out of us because they were not of us. By comparison, in today's texts, we will discover that John is referring to those deceivers who remain in influence. Those Antichrists who remain in influence, they still influence the church. They falsely claim to identify themselves as just good old church people. We're just good church, fo- church folk. And therefore, we uh, must be sharpened to identify the wolves. So a testing is in order. We need to test. And from that text with Paul in Ephesus, he had to admonish many of them. Acts chapter 20 says, even with tears. And Paul called those elders together in Ephesus to remind him of that challenge, that challenge of correction. And he wanted them to realize that upon Paul's departure, now those elders and pastors in Ephesus themselves would have to take that role of correction. As Paul had the the unfortunate experience that all Bible teachers do today at one level or another to have to admonish those who either have divergent theology or just faulty understanding. The Greek term we translate admonish means to set right, to correct, and even to warn. Admonishing is the unfortunate responsibility of any pastor, elder, or church leader. And subsequently, the Bible teacher as well, who is in charge of teaching. Uh, It's not a pleasant role uh, in admonishing. In fact, it was so unpleasant that Paul said, at times, it drew him to tears. But Paul reminded those pastors in Ephesus and us that admonishing and correcting must be done to correct false understandings of Scripture that would be detrimental to the other sheep. And and there's good reason for this. If God provides you or someone a role of Bible teacher, whether it be pastoring or teaching a class, uh, and you find yourself that you invest hours in studying, you pray over the text, you gather all resources together in order to find the correct biblical interpretation, of which we've already mentioned there is only one. 
And then, and then you sometimes have the experience of someone disrupting what you're teaching, someone who hasn't studied the text over the last several days, hasn't prayed over the text, hasn't gone to any resources on the topic. They raise their voice saying, yeah, well, that's just your interpretation. Let me tell everyone here what I think. And they proceed then to effectively unteach or undo everything that the teacher had been bringing together to feed the sheep. So it's a tone which even the the Apostle Paul had to deal with, uh, and the situation sometimes even brought him to tears. So here's a couple questions before we begin with the five signs of the wolf. Can a person who has taken the role of student or learner in a group, through a mask of careful premeditation of a question or a comment, effectively confuse and unteach the other sheep that are present? Sure they can. And, and second, do you think that these false teachers that uh, Paul, John, Jesus are talking about in other places in Scripture, do you think in their own minds that they actually think they're false teachers? Do you think they all realize what they are doing? The text doesn't doesn't demand that. They don't identify themselves as wolves. Uh, In in their own minds, they, they may even see themselves as a spiritual compass of the church. They might hold a group studying the Bible hostage to comment about what they say. They assume, passively assume, the role of teacher, right? Let me make a couple points, because some of this brought Paul to tears. So, Paul said they needed correction. We need to be careful of what we learn. Here's a couple points from another text afar off. Listen to this. Do you remember Paul's instructions to women in 1 Corinthians 14? It says, if they, meaning the women, desire to learn, and that means to inquire about something or to question something, let them ask their own husbands at home, right? Do you believe that is because Paul thinks that women are unintelligent? Wrong interpretation. It's not what that means. Do you think it means that that they don't have value? No, that's not what it means at all. Paul did have a number of very rational reasons for which I hope to go into greater detail in the future when we study 1 Timothy. But but here are just a couple reasons. First, Paul wanted men and their wives discussing the Bible subject at home. They wanted them ruminating over what was taught at home. Second, it preserved the husband as the spiritual leader to his home. The husband and wife would go through the subject, the topic, from the Sunday where they got together, whatever day they got together, and in front of their children then, they would ruminate about this as the husband led the home. That's another reason. There are more reasons. Uh, Another one is, uh, you can tell by the context of 1 Corinthians 14 as you read it, that some of the open comments that were being shared were confusing the local church. There was too much questioning and comment. So here's a couple valuable takeaways from that text. 
as we begin our primary text about wolves and, and that are menacing the church. First and foremost, all of your questions about a teaching don't have to be answered immediately on the spot. They don't. You can talk to your spouse about the Bible at home. You can read further literature at home. Today, you can even pick up the phone and call one of the teachers, myself or Pastor Weiler, or stop by and talk about things uh, in the text. But you don't have to have everything ironed out that same day. You might leave with questions. And in fact, you should. And, and as you study it, as you read it, you'll be amazed at what the Lord will reveal to you, given a little time, not just 30 seconds, to, to, so you don't... So you don't drop the subject entirely as you leave. You take the subject home with you. You don't hit the car and never think again about what was being taught. Given a little time, clarity is going to come on the issue. Second, after doing so, if you still have questions, you can bring them to the teacher later. Or if you have an urgent question, you can talk to the teacher after class. But third, because... The threat of is very real, false teachers, and, and because they are so skilled at sowing false doctrine through calculated questioning, through calculated comments, large, large group studies are predominantly not open form. Predominantly, like the one we have here, they are not open form, where somebody just says, this is what I think. So if a teacher does invite questions, which we do regularly, Stay on point. Be brief. And get back to the text. We don't hold the class hostage. People didn't come typically to learn from you. They came to learn from the person who has done the research, studied the material, prayed through it, and wants to share it as God leads. Um, And it it is proper etiquette. Uh, If If, let's say, the teacher has erred on a subject, that can happen. Any of us, that can happen. But if so, the proper etiquette is not to confuse the entire class through a hard question, but to approach the teacher after class and politely address your concern. A mature teacher, if your comment has any biblical merit, will amend their position the next week. They will, and that happens. So there are some ways to discourage, to, to dismantle the false teachers from weaving in false doctrine. Now we turn to our text, 1 John chapter 4. And we'll find the five ways to spot a wolf. It's unlikely John intends this list, by the way, to be exhaustive. It doesn't mean this is every attribute of a wolf. You also don't need to match all of these criteria to be a false teacher. You match just one, and you can be identified as a false teacher. These are five that we need to be diligently aware of. Our first warning sign in verse 1 that Red Riding Hood would have observed is that wolves have very big and sharp teeth. They have very big and sharp teeth. Look with me at 1 John chapter 4. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh 
is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, of which you have heard that it is coming, and now it is already in the world. In these first three verses, we find that there are many spirits in the world that need to be tested. So we test them. And that means that Christians are to have a healthy attitude of skepticism concerning what they hear. And last week, uh, both in the morning service and during evening group discipleship, uh, when Paul and Silas came to Berea, they received, the Bereans received the apostolic message with great eagerness. And why? Acts 17.11 says it's because they examined the Scripture daily and were able to verify Paul's teaching. Scriptures are always a litmus test to everything that we hear. On television, from the pulpit, in a study group, we hold all preaching and teaching up to the measuring rod of the Bible. As Paul told Titus, our faith must conform to the knowledge of the truth that is according to godliness. Jesus said, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. So we become sanctified and prepared for God's service through discerning the knowledge of the truth. And the Bereans did that, so they were considered more noble-minded, right? Notice how that's translated. More noble-minded. Again, the intellectual mind, not the heart, is engaged to discern doctrine. So we're, we're able to mentally and intellectually discern false prophets. And the Greek term for noble-minded was used of a noble race. It was a nobleman. The Greek term eugenis, from which the modern term eugenics was, uh, originates, also means to be well-born. You could say the Bereans originated from good spiritual breeding stock. Because they engaged their minds to test for the presence of ravenous wolves. And and there's good reason for us to do the same. It's because the false prophets or wolves John is referring to here originate from a spirit of error that denies that Jesus Christ came in the flesh. We saw this previously in chapter 2 where the Antichrist denied that Christ came in the flesh, indicating that denied the incarnation of God into the flesh. So these wolves then, they use their sharp teeth to tear away at the flesh of Christ. If you remember, we discussed how Mormons and Jehovah Witnesses both deny that God became flesh. In their theology, their false doctrine teaches that human flesh discovers somehow a way to become God. Completely contrary. But here we find a slightly differing terminology than chapter 2. The false prophets influenced by deceitful spirits deny that Jesus Christ came in the flesh. In this passage, the terms Jesus and Christ are co-joined. The Apostle John is firmly defending the eternality and the pre-existence of Jesus Christ, just as we find him as represented in the Gospel of John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. And later in the same passage, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, 
Glory is as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John the baptizer testified about Jesus and cried out, saying, This is he of whom I said, He who comes after me has a rank higher than I, because he existed before me. Again, the Christ, Jesus Christ, is eternal. He's not some man who became God at some point. It is God who became man, was born through a virgin. So John affirms for a second time in this letter that Jesus Christ is God who became flesh, which only magnifies how essential this doctrine of the incarnation is for Christianity, how essential it is to the redemption from sin. But it's not only cults that deny this. Today we have all kinds of preachers, even celebrities, who will praise the name of Jesus as a spiritual role model. It's good. Oh, that Jesus. Yet they'll refuse to recognize that Jesus was the pre-existent God who became flesh and dwelt among us. Instead, uh, many of the modern false prophets claim that Jesus was a really wise person who taught us to love. That's as far as it goes. That's true, but it's not the whole story. They'll vacate any semblance of of a Savior who vacated his heavenly throne and then came into our existence, our life, through the flesh, through a virgin, and then lived a perfect sinless life in order to die on the cross, bearing the shame of sin. Sin of a disgusting world. They don't like to hear about that Jesus. They tear at the flesh. No, he wasn't really God who became flesh. Because that sets him apart from every other spiritual influence in the world. Sets him apart from Buddha. Sets him apart from Islam, Hinduism. If God became flesh and dwelt among us, there is a lot to be thankful for. This is what I'm trying to say. It's very essential. When it says that Jesus came in the flesh, it doesn't mean that Jesus was just born like any of the rest of us were born. Many deceivers will say that. Oh yeah, I believe Jesus came in the flesh. He was born just like the rest of us. That is not what this is teaching. What this is teaching is That God became flesh, eternal God became flesh, which sets Jesus apart from every other philosopher in history. So yeah, it's essential to discern what a person is saying when they say, I believe in Jesus. What exactly do they believe concerning Jesus? Is it it something that they fabricated in their minds about Jesus? Or is it the truth that is held in here about Jesus. This is where we need to go to find out about Jesus. It's not stuff we just make up in our dreams. So it needs to align to biblical record. Even Oprah claims to be a Christian, and she says she believes in Jesus. She, she doesn't believe in the Jesus contained in this Bible here. I will tell you that right now. She considers herself very spiritual. She would not align or condone what Jesus says about himself in John chapter 14, 15, and 16. I'm the way, the truth, of the life. The only way 
God who became flesh. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father also. So we need to discern when someone says they believe in Jesus, they're a Christian, what's that mean? The false prophets of our day tear at the thought of an incarnation, a bodily incarnation, with their sharp and deadly teeth, denying that Jesus Christ as God came in the flesh. But to protect us against the false teachers, Christ has not left us alone. In John chapter 14, just hours before his crucifixion, Christ makes the disciples and us a promise. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him. But you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. Thankfully, God has provided every Christian a spiritual anointing. That is the indwelling Holy Spirit to discern false prophets. In Romans chapter 8, verse 9, it says, You are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you, But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. So we all have the Spirit of Christ if we believe in Christ. There are not some who have the Spirit and others who don't have the Spirit. Every single Christian is indwelt by the Holy Spirit who provides us our spiritual discernment. But how do we arrive at that discernment between good and evil, between true and false? Psalm 119 says, You have dealt well with your servant, O Lord, according to your word. Teach me good discernment and knowledge. For I believe in your commandments. Before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now I keep your word. This is a psalm that King David wrote concerning discernment and how it is inseparable from knowing the word of God. And for the church, nothing changes Philippians chapter 1 verse 9 says, And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment. Paul says true biblical love that abounds is a byproduct. It is rooted in genuine knowledge and discernment. So how, how, this needs to be asked. How does this identification of the wolves in sheep's clothing occur? Do we go on, on some kind of mystical hunch? Well, I think he is. Is discernment a gut feeling that you think someone is a false teacher or even a charlatan? You and I might get a gut feeling about someone. They got greased back hair, wearing a gangster suit, and flying around in their own private jet. That might cause anyone to perk up. But is, it, is your emotional gut feeling your compass? Is that how you navigate? Can you rely conclusively on saying, you know, I don't have a good feeling about that guy? The answer is no. And there's very good reason. First off, the Spirit doesn't tell us to rely solely or exclusively on any gut feeling. Here's a more important reason. The unfortunate truth is there are plenty of false prophets, wolves out there who don't wear greased hair, a fancy suit, or fly around in a jet. 
they look a whole lot like us. So you can't go by looks. And, and we approach spiritual discernment not as a gut feeling. Spiritual discernment originates out of the sword of the Spirit, which we know as the Bible. And the way that the Spirit guides you and me uh, is not by gut feelings. We might just not have eaten for a while. Gut feelings are helpful. But the Spirit guides by truth. And thy word is truth. So we take teaching and we hold it up next to God's word to see if it meshes. That is how we discern. A spiritual person in regards to discerning doctrine always examines carefully the scriptures to see if what the teacher is saying is so. That's what the Bereans did. So by implication, the second sign of a wolf is that wolves will dissuade you from going to the word for discernment of the truth. They will dissuade you from the word. They'll say, don't pay too close of attention to that Bible. And people are captivated captivated by this type of wolf by how big, hypnotizing eyes you have. The wolves mesmerize you into thinking that you're more spiritual. Trust your emotions. They will say, don't go to the Bible. Use your emotions as a compass. You'll hear this appealed to all the time on television. And, And when they get you to agree with that, they'll flatter you with speech. They'll assure you of how spiritual you are. Of such men, Romans 16, 18 says, such men are slaves, not of our Lord Christ, but of their own appetites. And by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. They deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. Notice Paul said, they deceive hearts. didn't say they deceive minds. Wolves will go for the heart. They'll go for the emotion. They say, check your brain at the door. Run with your heart. Because false teachers know that the heart is deceitful. It's deceitful above all else and desperately wicked, right? Who can understand it? The second sign of a wolf is their big eyes hypnotizing you to say, go follow your emotions. Next we'll discover the third sign of a wolf. That is what big ears they have. Really big ears. In verse 5 we see they, that means the, means the false teachers, they are from the world, therefore they speak as from the world. So you know a false teacher, a wolf, because he or she has her big ears tuned into the world. They're constantly scanning. They're listening to the trends of the world to see what's hip. They want to see what people like. And that way they can speak precisely and authoritatively to that fashion trend that the world has already embraced. In fact, the best false prophets, they will surf right in front of that cultural wave. They'll surf in front of it. When they see it coming and it picks them up, And as it grows bigger, they write it right into people's pocketbooks. And then they will ditch that wave right before it crashes to shore. So they aren't responsible with it. Then they'll turn around and they'll paddle back right out into the culture again. 
and grab themselves another wave. They're always listening to the world when they mesmerize people. 2 Timothy 4.3 says, For the time will come when they will not endure sound teaching. But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in according to their own desires, right? According to their own lusts. That's the day we're in today. And people will gladly hear to pay, uh, pay to hear them. Uh, but what did Paul say to Thessalonica concerning this and cultural waves? He said, we never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor a pretext for greed. Paul says, God is witness. You don't come with flattering speech. The fourth sign is closely related to the ears. It's not surprising as the false teachers have adopted everything that tickles the world. Wolves are known for what a big mouth they have. Look at verse 5 again. It says, and the world listens to them. The unregenerate, unsaved world loves what the false teachers say. Uh, Of course it does. The false prophet's message is tailor-fit like a suit to fit the world. So if you're a false prophet and and you're trying to catch the trends and you're trying to ride the wave and, and you've got a major speaking engagement somewhere a huge audience, what are you going to preach if the audience is trending favorable towards abortion? You're going to preach favorable towards abortion. What about if the Bible doesn't really speak a lot towards something like environmentalism? doesn't say a lot. We care for the earth, but doesn't say a whole lot about it. If you're a false teacher, and, and the culture is really trending towards that. Environmentalism is cool. If, if the rave is, wave is rising, are you going to speak to that? Oh, yeah. You're going to hop onto that wave, aren't you? You're going to ride that one in. People love to hear it. What about another trend that maybe the Bible doesn't speak to really at all? How about illegal immigration? Oh, you're going to ride that one. You're going to get on board with that one because the culture really wants talk about it actually the bible does talk about that talks specifically about illegal immigration it says it's illegal (laughs) but if you're at that speaking engagement and and the culture's turned off trending away from something trending away from a topic that's not popular say like sin say like biblical traditional marriage Are you going to quote to the audience texts and passages that they don't want to hear? Well, you'll avoid those portions of Scripture like the plague, won't you? You will not talk about it. You will not go to Matthew 19 when Jesus defines marriage as being between one woman and one man for life. If you want to be a a successful wolf, you won't go there. You surely won't, won't quote to people, Oh, what Peter did in Acts 4.12 where he said there's salvation in no one else, meaning Jesus, for there's no other name under heaven that is given among men by which you must be saved. You won't hear that from false teachers. Obviously, the world doesn't want to hear that. So the teacher will keep their mouth shut on that type of topic. Let's look to verse 6 for our fifth sign of a wolf. 
In this verse, John draws focus back to himself and the eyewitness testimony of the apostles, the original apostles. If you weren't with us when we began this uh, book, back in chapter 1, John has opening remarks. Let me remind you of them. Here he's speaking distinctly concerning himself and the other apostles. He says, What was from the beginning we have heard. What we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. And that life was manifested. That is Jesus' life. And we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also. This is the Apostles. So that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. These things we write, John says, so that our joy may be made complete. So the entire Christian faith is not built simply on the message of Christ. It's built on the eyewitness testimony of the apostles of Jesus Christ as it is recorded in the scriptures. Ephesians 2.19 assures us, you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So there's no other foundation of faith other than what is supplied by the New Testament apostles and Old Testament prophets. Prophets. There's no other foundation to go to, Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. And, and if you're familiar at all with ancient temple construction, or if you've read about it, the cornerstone is a perfect stone. It is cut square, and the cornerstone is set like an anchor. And the additional foundation stones, i.e. apostles and prophets, they will line up with the cornerstone. They will go out to the left, they will go out to the right, and they will remain square and level with Jesus Christ himself, with the cornerstone. And in order for a building to be, to be built up straight and stand secure over time, is that everything that is built on that foundation has to align to the cornerstone and the foundation that goes out from it. Or else you're going to get the leaning Tower of Pisa in your theology. You must remain true to the cornerstone that is, as it is revealed by the apostles and the prophets. The point is, nobody's belief system can deviate from the foundation of the apostles or prophets. Wolves in sheep's clothing ignore that. They ignore that. They will, leave, they will either claim themselves to be apostles or prophets, or they will add a deviant, corner, a deviant stone to the foundation off to the side, most of the time, they're just going to ignore the foundation altogether. Jude, Jude writes in his, in his short letter, verse 3, Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. It's not changing. It's built on the foundation. Verse 6 says in your Bible, We are from God referring to the apostles. He who knows God listens to us, again meaning the apostles. He who is not from God does not listen to us, meaning apostolic teaching, 
But this we, meaning Christians in general, know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. We know it. So our final sign there, that fifth sign, is what big hands the wolf has. He has big hands because when it comes to apostolic testimony, the truth that's found in the scripture about Jesus Christ, he takes those big hands, he covers his ears. He doesn't want to hear it. I don't want to hear about that testimony. It's not important, they will say. So when it comes to the Bible, they'll deny it. They'll rewrite it. They'll dismiss it. They'll mock anybody who adheres to it. And they'll say, you know what, you just use too much Bible. You're too literal. You're too concerned about it. You're picking the Bible apart, they'll say. We'll see some of this more tonight in the video. You're too judgmental. You need to just set that Bible aside and get spiritual. That's what they'll tell you. Just go with your heart and love. That is their message. So we'll discuss some of these things tonight as we resume the series Clouds Without Water. Is Scripture to be utilized for all sound discernment? It is. Are Christians supposed to discern and judge everything that we hear and see? We are. We'll talk about that remote verse. It's Matthew 7, 7. Judge not lest ye be judged. And how that is so abused by our culture. Really, it's the only verse that most unbelievers have memorized by heart. And they don't understand the context at all. We are absolutely supposed to weigh in and examine and judge everything carefully. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, so the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. So wolves, remember, big teeth. They tear at the bodily incarnation of Christ. They have big eyes. They hypnotize people into vacating their minds and going with their emotions. The wolves have the big ears and they tune into the world. They want to know what's going on so they can speak to that authoritatively. Number four, they're usually really great orators. They got big mouths. The way you can tell that is the world loves to listen to them. They love it. Yeah. Don't need to be a Christian or anything. That guy sounds good. Number five, their big hands cover their ears and they refuse to listen intently to the apostolic witness as it's found exclusively in the Bible. Well, it says, Brothers Grimm continued to write, Red Riding Hood narrowly escaped after the hunter came and cut open the wolf's belly. You remember what Red Riding Hood's final words were of that scene? As long as I live, I will never leave the path by myself to run into the woods. And that famous story ends saying, It is also reported that once, when Red Riding Hood was again taking cakes to the old grandmother, another wolf spoke to her and tried to entice her from the path. Red Riding Hood, forever, however, was on her guard and went straight forward on her way. Let's pray.